Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the agricultural revolution in Britain and how the disruption it caused led to rapid urbanization and the first steps towards automating the textile industry. Today, we'll pick up that same story by looking at some of the most recognizable players of the Industrial Revolution, iron, coal, and steam. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Scott Weaver. Hey. And we've been talking about the Industrial Revolution, or, or a lot of stuff comes right before the Industrial Revolution, at least. Um, mostly we focused last time on the Agricultural Revolution, which sort of had this effect of driving people out of the country and into the cities a little bit as uh, you know, farm labor just needed less and less with, uh, with innovation. Uh, and then we also talked about the textile industry. A lot more than I initially expected to. Surprisingly complex stuff. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting stuff, though. It's yeah. stuff that you really don't think about really at all. Clothes just sort of show up at whatever clothing retailer you step into. I buy and buy them from the shopping mall. Yeah. And, you know, you get your $4 t-shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who cares? Um, but the amount of the amount of work that, that went into transforming that industry to get us to the point where that's even remotely possible in its crudest sense is, is kind of staggering. And when you're starting from scratch like that, each little thing has such a compounding effect on the rest of the system that uh, it changes very quickly. I, I suppose I didn't even realize how much the textile industry would have an effect on because because when I hear the term industrial revolution, I think of like industry, like heavy industrial things. Right. And, and you know, cloth is not really what comes to mind, but it's, it's fascinating. Well, and I mean, I mean, we are talking about an industrial process still. Oh, totally. It's just that like, there's, there's something actually that we're going to, we're going to more or less start off with that's kind of missing from all of this, which is uh, iron. You know, we're, we're working with machinery when we're talking about textiles that's, yeah, that's the good stuff. very largely uh, made of wood right. and leather and a little bit of iron here and there. But like the amount of metal that's going into these is minimal at best. The other thing uh, that's always really important to remember about these machines is that they're being custom made. Every single one of them is being made start to finish by an extremely skilled individual or small group of individuals. Um, the term millwright actually uh, originates from people who are making water mill based machinery. So like when you're talking about millwrights who do like machine working, oh. millwright is in making a mill like, you know, interesting. Yeah. And these these people would go around and it's like yeah I, I need to make a uh, you know a water powered loom here's the little body of water I'm building it beside can you come out and just build me a water mill and they're like yes absolutely that's a skill that I have I'm a millwright oh also that makes me feel so uncomfortable with my own job which is to make 
custom bespoke pieces of software for people uh-huh. who need software to do tasks. And right. like, what's going to happen with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, to, to jump very, very far into the future from where we're talking, it's just a, <laughs> it's just the latest iteration of, of the same process that keeps happening over and over. Let's take something simplified to the point where a machine can do it for you. And then, uh, you know, the person moves on to either, uh, supervising that task or into another industry altogether. Mm-hmm. As I said, these machines, they tended to be, almost entirely wood, almost entirely uh, custom made. And you would run into a problem fairly frequently where the wood would essentially get loose. Like all the joints and stuff would sort of work itself apart. You have these things spinning at like incredible speeds. You've got a lot of force being applied to these things, especially when you're looking at a set of machinery where you have like this large drive shaft running through an entire mill that's driving multiple machines, like the amount of torque that's being put on one of these wooden shafts is extreme. Totally. But you don't really have another option. And so you'd have these millwrights coming back and fixing up these machines with these new like custom fabricated parts to replace these other custom fabricated parts that were in place uh, to begin with. This is very quickly a limiting factor in the amount of uh, work that can be done through automation. And, you know, don't get me wrong, these wooden machines are are astoundingly uh, efficient compared to everything anyone had ever done before this. Um, But materials ends up being uh, the, the new limiting factor. It's not as though they didn't have iron, obviously. There was plenty of that. But the way that you would have people working with metal is much more medieval where you're talking about literally a blacksmith right creating things once again custom and once again by hand for the most part um this is still very much a you know a hand forged you might have an apprentice working the bellows for you to get the fire hot enough to melt iron but all the shaping all of the hammering folding all of that stuff even uh refining the iron out of um sort of more crude or forms is done custom by hand right. in a blacksmith shop. So it became really mass produced when you have to like hit every piece on an anvil. And right. Yeah. So it's not as though there weren't attempts to mass produce. Um, the idea of casting isn't exactly uh, a new concept. That's something that's been around for thousands of years at this right. point, but casting is much more useful for much more ductile metals um, and mm-hmm. tends to be used a lot more for things like copper or bronze or um, even gold and silver. Uh, it just works a little bit better. It's got a lower melting point. It pours a little bit easier. Totally. It, uh, it sets a little bit better. Um, the weird thing about iron is that when you just kind of let it cool down, it has sort of a granular texture to it. Like it crystallizes, uh, especially on the outside. So think of like a traditional like cast iron uh, pan. It's got that kind of pebbled texture I can to it. it. Yeah, that is a reaction that's happening between the iron and the air around it as it cools, and uh, it makes for very distinctive pieces. But it also makes the iron incredibly brittle. Right. And compared to all this other stuff we're talking about, copper, bronze, brass, it, that it, it's a very brittle metal. It's you know, again thinking back to grade ten science. It's not very ductile. <laughs> It also has a much higher melting temperature, so it takes a lot of work to make this stuff um, into something useful, and uh, doing it by hand was really the best way that we had in Europe for making any of this stuff work. Blacksmiths in general wouldn't burn just straight wood fires because wood had trouble getting it hot enough, right? So they would make charcoal instead. Charcoal is just uh, wood that's gone through a process called pyrolysis, and that's just, you know, it's exactly what you see at the bottom of the campfire when it's done, it burns down, right? All that is, is kind of the leftovers of wood when it's burned in a low oxygen environment. 
you know, without getting too deep into it, it, it burns off all the impurities a little bit and leaves it with a much more um, pure carbon brick, I suppose, mm. uh, which burns much more cleanly and much hotter when you do eventually burn it. Right. And so there were people, and, and there have been for hundreds and hundreds of years, but there were people basically just taking wood and uh, burning them in these giant piles uh, to make charcoal because it's known to be a much more useful uh, fuel especially for high temperature applications, especially uh, blacksmithing. But charcoal is uh, really time intensive to make. You have to burn this entire pile down. It's, it's multiple days when you're doing it in large batches. Also, Britain's forests were starting to thin a little bit by the 18th century. You've got a lot of other things they want to use the wood for, i.e. the Royal Navy. And, you know, making charcoal isn't an efficient process in terms of the materials you're getting out. Uh, as well as the time putting in, um, you're getting a pretty small percentage of the uh, the wood back as charcoal. Right. I guess it's a pretty small island to begin with. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty big island actually. But yeah, well compared but to like compared Europe. to like yeah compared to the forests of Germany or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's no comparison. Britain did have uh, another resource that was actually quite plentiful compared to the uh, compared to the uh, the continent, which was coal. Mm. Coal's been used as a fuel for a very, very long time. Like the Romans were mining coal in Britain during uh, their occupation of the of the island two thousand years ago. It's not as though we didn't know about coal. And there is a ton of coal in Britain. Um, if you ever look at kind of a heat map of where it's distributed throughout the island, it's it's insane how much there is. They hit the jackpot there. Right. The trouble with British coal was more getting to it than it was necessary, necessarily having any. And a lot of the stuff that was easy to just kind of scrape off the surface had already been done long, long ago. And, you know, coal is going to burn even better than charcoal. It's, it's uh, you know, decomposed plant matter that's gone through geological processes to compress it into this perfect little nugget of, of, of carbon that burns oh so well. And... You know, by the time of the Industrial Revolution, people were already using coal to some, to some extent for things like furnaces. The trouble with it is that it smells really bad. It produces a lot of soot, like a lot of smoke, like mm -hmm. really black, oily smoke. And they weren't quite clear on this whole connection, but it produces a lot of like carbon monoxide. Like you can really easily be. Uh, smoked out by coal. Now, luckily, their houses tended to be a lot draftier than the modern home, and so a lot of that kind of took care of itself. But still, people understood they didn't really want to be around burning coal if they could help it. Right. There had been attempts to use coal for uh, iron processing because it burned so much hotter and so much more efficiently. But the problem there is that coal is really high in sulfur, and when sulfur gets into iron, it makes it even more brittle. Mm. So we're kind of back to square one on that. People using charcoal almost exclusively for iron production. It's really interesting uh, as we go forward to watch kind of the interplay between coal and iron and how each kind of enhances the other as certain uh, advances are, are made in, in, either, uh, in either industry, as well as the steam engine. That's going to be coming in soon, too. Yes. But you can't have any one of them without the other two in there somewhere. Right. Even though coal wasn't great for iron production, it was being used in other sort of pseudo-industrial processes. People started using it for copper, for example, because copper had no problems rejecting the sulfur in it. And you could actually make cast copper at a pretty good size, pretty efficiently and, and uh, pretty consistently. So the processes behind, say, for example, rolling this stuff or uh, making the molds for this stuff uh, are already in place. And they're just 
basically industrializing processes that have been in place for centuries. But they're realizing like, hey, I can get a massive pot of copper purified using coal much more quickly than I can with charcoal. And it'll give me actually a more pure uh, substance because the higher heat will do a better job of separating the the metal from the you know the, the slurry basically. Right. So it's it's being used in these other places and people start using these softer metals for uh, parts in machinery uh, as opposed to wood because they realize that wood isn't necessarily like a long term excellent construction material when it's uh, a moving uh, machine. Right. Now, wood's great for very stable non-moving structures <laughs> when you start putting torque on wood it's not great yeah um trouble is copper is not much better exactly when you're when you're trying to put like lateral pressure on it it doesn't hold up it's just not strong enough pretty bendy yeah and so people really stay focused on iron they feel like that's that's where it's got to be iron's been known for millennia at this point as being the strongest one we got to figure out something with iron and we've got to do it on a scale that doesn't involve a bunch of blacksmiths making this by hand because sure you can have them turning out nails and they did have them turning out nails there were factories full of blacksmiths that were doing nothing but making nails all day it's that factory system that we were talking about last time get a bunch of people in the same place give them resources to work with and have them produce as much as possible right Mm -hmm. but you know they're looking at well what about buildings what about uh massive machinery what about all of this other stuff that we could do with it uh that we just can't make the the metal uh strong enough and consistent enough on a on a large enough scale uh to do all of this somebody finally figures out i say somebody it's long enough before the industrial revolution we don't exactly have like one dude and as with the first half, it was already figured out in china like <laughs> 1500 years before all of this right yeah. um that that whole process that you put charcoal through uh, or wood through to make charcoal why don't we just do that with coal because coal's dirty wood kind of burns a little bit dirty too if we can purify this uh, this coal can we get a better fuel out of it that might work a little bit better for iron production or at the very least be a more efficient fuel um one of the things that was kind of in mind there was all these people burning coal like in their homes for heat in the winter which just sucked it was kind of like, can we make a clean burning energy source for all of these people to heat their homes with that's not going to choke them out? Right. Um, and so they try it out. And it turns out that is absolutely possible with coal. It makes a substance known as coke. And it's, well, it's it's exactly what charcoal is to wood. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a more refined version of coal. And they're correct. It does burn cleaner. It's got less odor. It's got much less uh, smoke. And... Um, yeah, the carbon monoxide issue is still there, definitely. <laughs> but, um, you know, people don't really notice it. So it's not as much of a right. problem for them. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's not a detriment to the, uh, the marketing notes on it. Um, <laughs> Coke has been used since the 1500s in Britain on very limited uh, applications. In fact, the earliest known like industrial uh, application for it is in the 1640s, which is over a century before the time period we're really focusing on. Mm-hmm. That was for brewing beer on an industrial scale. Yes, um, they were running into problems where boiling the beer before uh, before or during the brewing process was resulting in like a sulfury taste in the beer, and they were like, "This is gross," but also we don't want to just use charcoal. Uh, charcoal, um, let's use coke instead, and you don't get that sulfur taste in the beer, and everyone was very happy. Of course, of course, <laughs> lots obviously. of beer, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's interesting how, how things like that can go on something as simple as just like this tastes bad. Totally. Let's find a better way. 
So people start using coke in really cheap cast iron production. Starting in about 1709, uh, a guy named Abraham Darby invents uh, kind of a blast furnace that uses coke to fire this uh, to fire iron and make really cheap cast iron, uh, um, mainly cooking appliances, but you know other other things as well. And it turns out that while coke has a lot of advantages over coal, it still has really high sulfur. Uh, content. So it's not really making much better iron uh, out of that process. That being said, it's so cheap because he's making it in such big batches that the price comes down significantly and cast iron sort of starts entering the marketplace in Britain beginning in, in as I said, the early 1700s. And now you don't have to go to a blacksmith just to get a cooking pot. It's still expensive. It's mm. still very expensive, but it's not like custom made we'll get back to you in a month when I finally figure this thing out. Right. You know, going to be worth a year worth of your salary. It's expensive, but not blacksmith expensive. Exactly. And having that enter the marketplace starts driving demand as, as things like that do. Uh, once people are aware that it's available to them, they want cheaper and better versions of it. And so that, that really starts driving a, a, a push to find a cheaper uh, and more consistent way to make iron. Mm. cast iron uh also known as pig iron has a really high carbon content and that's part of the problem with it being so brittle uh that's part of that crystallization process and when you work it over like we were talking about when the blacksmith hammers it and hammers it and hammers it until it's no longer pebbled a lot of what that's doing is giving the heat time to like work the carbon out so they're going like how do we do this on an industrial level the answer is something called puddling and again puddling has been known since the first century in china but uh, it's not really invented uh, or invented with scare quotes in Britain <laughs> until the, the late 1700s. About 1783, uh, a guy named Peter Onions comes up with a type of uh, oven that's, uh, that's capable of, of producing this. And what's required for puddling iron, uh, turning, uh, b- basically turning pig iron into um, like wrought iron, is you have to figure out a way to heat it while keeping the fuel separate from the metal itself so that the sulfur doesn't get into it. Right. Because keep in mind, the way that they're heating the, uh, the iron up until now is taking it and like literally shoving it right in the coals in the furnace and then blasting it. I suppose that will get the sulfur in there, if anything will. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you have to find this, uh, this way of, of uh, heating it while keeping those two chambers separate. But they figured out it tends to work best if you get some, like, of, the, some of the uh, gases from the, from the fuel going over the metal. And what that does is keep the metal in a in an oxygen deficient environment uh, oh, okay. and keeps it from oxidizing while you're working the metal. So you need no physical contact with the like with the the solid uh, fuel, but you do want contact with the gases coming off of the fuel. Right. So Onions invents this uh, this furnace that does it. It's called a reverberatory furnace, which is like a, a like reflective. Like it's it's like what's happening in one chamber is happening in the other. And this is a complete game changer. All of a sudden, he can make on an industrial scale, the type of uh, metal that's needed for actual industrial applications. So this is the stuff that starts getting rolled out in giant girders, right? Like this is the kind of thing that you need for making like eye bars, right. stuff like that. 
It gets all the carbon out of there. Uh, there's a, a rolling process that he uh, th- that gets invented in the next year, patented by a guy named Henry Court. Keep in mind, all of these guys are stealing everyone's ideas and of the, course, the names yeah. that we're throwing out here are never the first person. <laughs> as, as you do. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, they're the guys on the patent and that's about, about all I've got to work with, really. Right. Um, so this rolling process helps keep that crystallization from happening. It gets you that really small, smooth, really uniform iron that's going to be used from uh, in anything from railway ties eventually or, or rails, I should say, eventually mm. to girders and structures to um, one day uh, armor plating on battleships, right? Like this is the process that makes industrial iron. Right. Now, it does take a ton of fuel, though. And Coke isn't exactly easy to make. Um, you're getting maybe a 30% return when they first start making Coke uh, of, of coal to Coke. Mm. Um, when they first start out, they're just burning it in giant pits and they're, you know, they're losing most of it to the burning process and just scraping out whatever they can. They realize after a while that what you want to do is build these sort of beehive shaped structures and they're, they're tall. They're, they're like a dozen feet tall kind of thing. And they're made out of clay, like really thick uh, earth. Mm. And w- what you do is you pack the entire thing full of coal and it's got little uh, vents at the bottoms for airflow. And then you start the fire at the very top and it burns its way down through the entire uh, through the entire thing. And when it does this, it keeps it from getting like too much oxygen in there. Oh. And it burns all the way down. It keeps it much, uh, it, it, it results in much more uh, coke at the end of the process. And so you, in in South Wales or in North Ireland, or North uh, England, sorry, you'd be going by these mines uh, where they're digging the, uh, the coal out and you'd just see rows and rows of these beehive-shaped buildings with smoke uh, pouring out of them where they're making it into coke for these industrial processes. This quickly eats up all that easy coal that we were talking about, right? Whatever was like still on top. And it's not as though shaft mining hadn't been invented yet. It was just that it was incredibly dangerous as a process, right? right. Um, you're going in a giant hole in the ground. It could collapse at any point in time. You're digging a flammable uh, substance out of the earth. There, there's a lot of issues with uh, with mining. I suppose even if it doesn't collapse on you, it's dirty and well difficult. The black lung is a real, totally. real, real thing. It's yeah. a very real thing. There's something known as fire damp, which is this gas that's i mean they don't really differentiate on what gas exactly it's normally methane is what you're talking about but you'd get gases building up in these mines where the smallest spark could light it and you'd have an explosion um coal dust could also explode but usually you'd have fire damp before you had coal dust like the fire damp spark would set off a coal dust explosion okay really dangerous stuff this is where you get the whole like canary in the coal mine uh thing right that's a literal thing that they would bring down if the canary died you know there's too much uh, methane gas down there and you need to get out because you're risking an explosion. Right. So, I mean, that solves that problem. The structural stuff they kind of figure out as they go after many, many collapses, but you figure out how to properly structure these shafts. However, if it rains, they fill up with water, people drown. It's really, really bad. And so you would start this mine and like, even if you have everyone get out in time, it quickly fill up with water and now you can't mine anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just gravity. Like that's just how that works. <laughs> like if you hit a water table, you're done. If you've got, uh, you know, if you're too close to a, a, a river of some sort, which there are tons of those in Northern, uh, Northern England, there's rivers everywhere. Um, if you're too close to that and it seeps in, you're done. You have to figure out a way to get the water out of there. So, I mean, they have pumps. That's a thing. 
but the rate of flow of water into these mines is fast enough that like a guy up there with a pump is not able to keep up with it. And so they would build bigger and bigger pumps worked by uh, horses. So they'd have teams of draft horses just walking around in a circle, pumping these things out. But, you know, horses get tired. You've got to swap them out. They're expensive. There's a lot of problems with that. And you could really only get so much pressure up with those. Mm -hmm. Um, They weren't exactly ideal. In comes Thomas Savory. 1698, he invents something known as the miner's friend. The miner's friend is one of the first steam engines uh, created in the modern era. Now, the idea of a steam engine isn't exactly new. People have been using steam pressure to drive small engines, again, since the Roman times. And a lot of people hear that and they kind of think to themselves, well, why didn't the Romans incorporate more steam power? Why didn't they industrialize more? They, they saw it as a toy. Like there was no, we, we talked a little bit of last time about how there was really no drive societally to automate from the Romans. In fact, there were there were examples of them uh, willfully suppress, uh, suppressing uh, automation as uh, something that they saw as a societal good. Right. So uh, that's that's not really anything to to worry too much about. There was no... Uh, you know, it, it just wasn't the right time for them, I suppose is the easiest way to say it. But, you know, we also talked last time, if you have many, many slaves to do the work, you don't necessarily want to turn to machinery instead. Right. Uh, there's little drive for innovation in that situation. Totally. So anyways, the miner's friend, it's this really interesting, like condensation based steam engine. So what they would do is, is they would, you know, set a fire, boil the water, uh, the, the pump would draw um, steam into a chamber and then they'd put cold water on the outside of the chamber, which would cause the steam to like condense really quickly, which creates ne- negative atmospheric pressure, which starts like a siphoning motion. And it's able to draw water 25 feet, which is pretty significant at a pretty decent rate. Oh, interesting. And so they set up a series of these things out of the mine, drawing water up in basically a, a, an ongoing motion. So it, there's not even any like moving parts, really. It's no, just there, more about the. There's moving parts to like let the steam in totally. and all of that stuff. But it's but not it's like not... a wheel turning, lifting water or something. No. It's, it's just pressure yep. sucking it up. Yep. And once the once the uh, once the steam is released, the con- uh, the condensed steam is released, then it seals, and then another batch of steam comes in. Right. Neat. Steam engines, when they start, are not turning engines. Mm. They do not turn. They reciprocate back and forth. Right. For a couple of reasons. Number one, because they're designed specifically for pumping in mind. I mean, they're working on the same uh, mechanism as as any other water pump, right? Like you have the lever going up and down mm-hmm. basically at the, at the end of the day. Um, number two, the mechanisms needed to create like a consistent turning motion out of um, uh, the mechanism behind a steam engine, which, you know, really a steam engine is very similar to internal combustion. You just need gases expanding and contracting right Mm -hmm. expanding and contracting works really well for back and forth like an up and down within a range totally to turn it into something that turns you need pistons you need flywheels you need all of this stuff that it's not that it's not unknown to them it's known to them quite well you need such precision machining to make that work that it's not really the kind of thing that you can cobble together in a blacksmith shop totally i I suppose my um kind of my my ignorant view that comes to mind when when every time you say steam engine even even now mm. is a sweet 
train like barreling down the tracks smoke yeah. shooting out wheels spinning pistons moving sure but i mean it totally makes sense pistons and things turning is, is totally a complication over like the simple steam mechanism yeah back and forth yeah and we're we're still quite a ways away from that particular locomotive oh, no. that's uh, right. that's that's uh it's down the track so but <laughs> <laughs> um no these these steam engines are very simple very gritty things mm. and honestly the only reason that they can afford to run them is because they're right beside their own fuel source right so you're shoveling coal straight into it from the mines yeah um they're very inefficient they're very dirty they're very smelly they're they're awful things but they're keeping miners alive mm. and that's what matters and it allows them to get in deeper to get down to all of this coal that's so essential one of the biggest limiting factors of these steam engines is the fact that they are using a copper boiler that's soldered right mm. and that only has like that that can only contain so much pressure right yeah. like that's that that's only going to take you so far um it will burst eventually that solder is only so strong it's almost as if they could really use another material that was much stronger imagine that <laughs> to allow these steam engines to expand and improve uh, as i said all this stuff is kind of like intertwined with itself right yeah. and if uh you know if britain hadn't had all of this coal they would have been severely limited and if they hadn't had you know these people with with an understanding of steam power they would have been limited by their fuel store, source not being able to pull it out of the ground and that would have limited their ability to work with iron and mm -hmm. their inability to work with iron would have continued to limit their ability to extract coal and like there's this whole cycle that that it needs all three pieces to work properly. Totally. The draw depth would eventually increase to as much as 150 feet once this uh, process to um, uh, make iron on a larger scale was perfected. So originally they're using less good cast iron boilers to make them. A guy named uh, Thomas Newcomen comes up with this this design using cast iron that can draw water much further, much faster. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a steam engine at that point that would have like a full horsepower, which as much work as a horse can do. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's not exactly true, but you know, more or less, that's that's what they were uh, equating it to at that point in time. Um, the thing is, you don't have a horse that you need to feed. You don't have a horse that gets tired. You just keep shoveling coal in and it'll go all day, every day. It was really useful for the mining, obviously, but people realized after a while, like, hey, pumping water and pumping air through bellows is basically the same motion. Like, it's still that short range up and down, right? Mm -hmm. And they went, okay, well, when we're working in the forges, like, we don't need, you know, a, a team of young boys hauling on these bellows anymore. Let's just hook one of these new steam engines up to one of these things, keep shoveling in the coal and it's going to go all day right and so now you can increase the sizes of the um the foundries that are being made because you've automated the bellows which is one of the most work intensive portions uh of of that process bigger foundries better iron bigger sheets of iron bigger boilers bigger steam engines more coal it's just it, it keeps on going A delightful cycle uh -huh. in and around this time Something just just barely outside of this cycle is also invented, which is the concept of uh, precision machining. People realize you can't just continue custom uh, uh, casting all of these 
items and expect to make that a sustainable thing. It's one thing to have a machine that's like built out of a few metal parts and then whatever goes in between those metal parts is just wood beams because it's really easy to just cut beams to the right size and switch it out yeah. if there's ever a problem. You don't even necessarily have to call a millwright if something goes wrong, if it's a simple enough fix as just, you know, swap out that beam for another one and we're good to go. Mm-hmm. You just don't need to call anybody. If your entire machine is made of metal, that's great. It's going to stand up a lot better. It's going to be able to handle a lot more work. But if anything goes wrong, they realize that like the amount of repair work that goes into it becomes prohibitive at that point in time. So they realize that they've got to start doing things like, I don't know, making screws the same sizes. That's a thing that people were like custom making. I mean, screws were really oh. a thing for the most part up until that point. You'd be either using nails in, in wood or you'd be riveting. Right? right. And even rivets, the sizes could be a little bit uh, janky if you're not careful. It's just that the way a rivet works, it doesn't much matter. Mm-hmm. You get more flexibility. Absolutely. In uh, 1774, the, sl- uh, the slide rest lathe is invented by a guy named Henry Maudslay or someone he knew or whatever. This is considered one of the most important inventions of the Industrial Revolution. It's just a lathe, Mm -hmm. but it allows you to consistently machine parts and not just screws, although screws are an incredibly important portion of that, but uh, metal fittings for valves, uh, pistons. Uh, tightly fit pistons of a consistent diameter and what's more pistons that you could take um, a broken one and swap it out for a brand new one without any uh, need for custom measurement or custom fitting Mm -hmm. this is so crucial to automation like it's one of those things that you don't even really consider because you know for a couple of hundred years now you can just go to the hardware store and ask for quarter inch screws and that's what they'll give you but that's not that wasn't the reality up until this point in time. They didn't have the precision to make these things. Um, I think it comes through most clearly when we think of the reputation of like Swiss, Swiss clockmakers, mm. right? When you think of like clockmaking in the 16th and 17th century, there's this whole like they're the most accurate in the world. Like they're, they're able to make the most carefully uh, constructed movements that's going to keep the best time. And you're thinking like, okay, well, time is time. What's the big deal sort of thing. But these guys were cutting gears by hand. They're like every single little piece in this clock, they're hand forging, they're hand casting, they're filing down to the right, uh, the right size, fitting together and making sure that it runs smoothly enough to actually keep time. Mm -hmm. Once you get the lathe in here, that becomes a lot less impressive. (laughs) I suppose so. Yeah. Not specifically what they were doing before when they didn't have the tools, but like to make a clock after all of these tools are invented becomes a much less daunting thing because Mm -hmm. you just know that, well, you need to cut a gear that's a, you know, three quarter inch across and needs to have teeth at however many degrees and just cut it the size. No problem. You're good to go. Right. The lathe allows you to do all that to the level of precision that was needed for all these new machines being made being made entirely out of metal. The biggest place you're going to see this helping out, not just in Britain, but across the world, is actually in the military. Because up until this point, even gunsmithing, cannons are just being cast one at a time, right? Like they're custom cast. Guns even are being made by gunsmiths one at a time. If something breaks on your gun, you need to go and get an entirely new gun. Mm. As standardized parts become more and more precise, the ability to like swap out a piece of a gun becomes something that you can absolutely do reliably and expect it to work the way that it's always worked. You can expect 
all guns to fire exactly the same. So if yours is lost, you don't need to relearn how to shoot accurately. Um, Mechanisms for artillery become much more reliable because you can machine uh, the the elevation mechanisms so that they actually work exactly the same across all artillery Mm. pieces. It's not a bunch of guys just kind of propping up a cannon and taking a look and going, "Ah, it looks about right. Right. All of this stuff becomes sort of one of the hallmarks of uh, combat, um, basically French Revolution and on, especially in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, when machining gets very good, this idea of replaceable parts is a hallmark of, of the Napoleonic Wars, and that's where you get very good artillery. That's where you get very replaceable parts in the military. Okay. So it's not just helping with like the performance of the weapons, but also... You know, the amount that you can keep running yeah it's it's about it's about the logistics of the of the army i right. mean everyone thinks about the you know the battle plans and you know who's got the sun at their back and you know <laughs> all of that stuff that comes down on the on the day of the battle but it's 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 really surprising when you kind of get into military history how much of it is who can make sure that the troops have good socks right. um you know it's it's these little things that seem maybe unimportant but make all the difference in the world for the soldier on the ground and uh you know, I, I just we just had a topic talking about the the Punic Wars. That's twenty four hundred years ago, twenty three hundred mm. years ago, where there were battles that came down to whether or not troops had eaten breakfast before the battle, or wow. had to swim a river before the battle. Like it's little it's little things like that that can make a massive difference. Right. So the ability to make sure that your troops are well provisioned and that they're well equipped is absolutely essential i guess no point having the most troops if their guns don't work exactly yeah also they're way more likely to actually bayonet charge if they know that their bayonets fit properly <laughs> you know it's, it's little things like that. totally yeah um so it's 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 a very big deal but i mean and not not just militarily it's just that's one of the most like immediate concrete mm. real world places that you see it is is the napoleonic wars were all encompassing in this uh in this time period right the ability for factory owners to uh repair their own machinery with workmen that were, you know, less than skilled laborers that were not, you know, millwrights in the more uh, modern sense of the word mm-hmm. was extremely valuable to them. You don't want to have to call up the only expert in town every time something goes wrong if you can replace it yourself. Right. Just put in a new screw like you would have replaced that wooden beam mm-hmm. previously. Exactly. The replacement of wood as a construction material uh, with metal, I mean, uh, obviously never actually fully happens. Uh, You know, houses are built of wood all the time. Mm. But kind of symbolically, uh, construction uh, using metal comes into its own in 1781 with the construction of the Iron Bridge in Shropshire, which is just this little bridge going across a a little creek. And it's uh, like an iron cantilever bridge. And it's one of those things that if you don't realize that it's the first iron bridge ever made, it's maybe a little bit unremarkable, mm-hmm. but it stands today and is in use today. Wow. And it was built in 1781. That's cool. Using all of these methods that we're talking about, all of this machining, uh, I mentioned that pistons was one of the biggest things that it helps with. Pistons are absolutely useless unless they fit tightly. Too tight and they don't move at all. They're seized, not tight enough. And, you know, the entire point of a piston is to harness the energy of an explosion, right? So uh, if the if those expanding gases are leaking out around the pistons, uh, it's not doing anything for you at all. Mm-hmm. Once that's a thing that we get down to uh, at least good enough tolerances that you can make something efficient using a piston-driven engine, uh, you get 
James Watt, who invents a steam engine in 1778. It's perfected more or less by 1783. And it's incorporating all of these machined parts that we were talking about. You're no longer working with this sort of rough cast iron uh, boiler. These are, are precision machined uh, uh, engines using standardized parts. They're using flywheels. They're using pistons. And most importantly, they're no longer just reciprocating. They're no longer back and forth pumping motion. They can actually move in a circular motion. Mm. This is big because all of the machinery that we've made up until this point hasn't been based on engines other than, you know, the, the, the forge bellows and things like that. But those are very like specialized uh, applications. Pumping out of mines is really important. Working bellows is really important. But every other machine that we have is through that textile model of working off of water mills. Mm-hmm. Water mills just turn. They don't go back the other way. And that model had also been expanded to draft horses. Draft horses just go around in a circle. They don't go the other way. So you need that continuous motion for just about everything we're working with. And by the time uh, uh, Watt is making his steam engine, industry has expanded much, uh, quite a bit past um, just the textile industry, although that's one of the biggest users of, of industrial machinery. But every time it's expanded in any way it's been based on those textiles so it's based on a continuous rotating motion Hmm. these factories that are going up often what's going to happen is they have a water mill um, set up and then the factories will actually be on multiple levels and the the water mill shaft will extend uh, into the bottom of the factory and then it'll have a, a gear drive set up at a 90 degree angle. So the shaft will run directly up through the center of the where, uh, of the uh, of the factory, sorry, through all the floors. And it's just going to be turning continuously. And on every level, there's going to be machinery that hooks up to the central drive shaft. It's called a line drive. And it all is just belts and pulleys that hook onto this, uh, this central turning line. And it works every single thing in that factory. It's crazy. You need something that spins at a consistent speed, at a consistent power. And up until Watt invents this, the only thing that works that way, well, the only two things that work that way are running water and horses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the horses aren't as consistent as the running water. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Which means the factories are almost all tied to running bodies of water. Or if you want it anywhere else, you are, it is absolutely necessary that you run entirely off of draft animals. Mm-hmm which is not really the best way to do it. Uh, again, it's it's not as though they're not hard workers, but like horses can be inconsistent. You know, part of the point of automation is to have a system in place where no one can get tired or no one needs a break or no one needs to be fed or no one can get sick. Um, putting horses back into that equation kind of robs some of that uh, efficiency from the equation. Totally. Watts engines generate anywhere from five to 10 horsepower, which is unreal at this point in time that's incredible stuff and to prove the usefulness of his machine he's actually demonstrating around the country against real horses to show like listen this engine can do the work of all of those horses uh the easiest way to tell people this is just go watch it's easiest to just to just to look at it i know it's kind of unbelievable that this machine can do that uh just go watch it you'll see and it's quite effective these steam engines are loud, they are uh, uh, noisy, they are belching steam everywhere. They look <laughs> horrendous. They look like they're going to explode at any point in time. And they're not terribly safe, really. 
but the potential that's contained within them is undeniable. And people right. that are looking at it are are very acutely aware of just how much potential is wrapped up in these steam engines. It's easy to see the possibilities because we've already gotten to a point here where they realize basically any machine can be run off of a spinning drive shaft. Well, this thing spins drive shafts. Uh, we're good to go. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a long time after the Industrial Revolution before um, steam engines or other forms of power really take over from running water that's going to be i I mean it's just too easy and it's just too cheap and it's uh um you know industry has already grown up in places that take advantage of it that's Mm -hmm. not something that goes away overnight well i suppose why would you want to move away from that running water doesn't even need coal shoveled in anywhere exactly there's there's a lot of reasons not to go to steam power Mm -hmm. so it's not as though everyone goes wow steam we're going to stop using water forever right it's that it opens up opportunities in places where um those other methods those other preferred methods uh weren't available and that's really important as the mine shafts get deeper and deeper one of the biggest issues you know now that we've got the whole pumping the water out thing uh sorted out there there were other problems too that uh um you know the, the structural collapses still occasionally happened um there was that uh there were the coal gases to worry about in the explosion people tried inventing various types of headlamps that were like closed in they're called geordie lamps um to try and like filter out the coal dust to keep things from exploding but they were really dim and they sometimes malfunctioned and they weren't that much better really but at least they were trying i suppose (laughs) um the other problem that you start running into is how do you get the coal out for a while what they were doing was putting the coal on these sledges and having people and then sometimes as the operations expanded horses dragging them out of these uh of these mines but it's like really hard work and horses break legs and it's it's terrible stuff it's it's really really hard to drag something like that i would imagine and so the easiest solution is to put all of this on rails started with wooden rails um there's fairly low friction if you put uh, wheels on wood rails, but as uh, iron extrusion becomes uh, cheaper, more efficient, more standardized, they quickly realize that making iron rails is probably the way to get around this problem. It's one of those things that I think we now think of as fairly intuitive that like running on rails is going to work out really well, but it was a lot of work to try and sell people on this idea that you know rails are actually really efficient and it took a lot of demonstrations where you would have you know a horse and you'd show that you know on a cart on a regular path kind of thing it could pull about a ton one horse could pull about a ton on a wagon that same horse could pull about six times that amount of weight on rails wow not only that but it could start and stop like that was a that was a major part of the the demonstration it's one thing to like keep a load going it's all about the low friction right but it's another thing to actually start it and that same horse could start it on rails and it was like guys we need to get on rails rails are rule i didn't realize that it was that dramatic the difference yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal putting stuff on rails wow yeah it's again it's one of those things that it's it's kind of pervasive and you don't really think about like well what's the what's the advantage here really um a lot of it honestly growing up for me seemed like well it keeps it on the same on the same pathway exactly. right? you, don't, you don't have to steer you don't then. have to steer it <laughs> we went to all this work for all this infrastructure so people don't have to steer basically right? no it's about the fr- it's about the friction it's about yeah. hauling uh massive amounts of weight more efficiently but, and i mean it makes sense now that you mentioned it but six times is is remarkable yeah yeah it was a big deal and so they started building these just little tracks out of the mines after a while, they realized that building shafts large enough for horses um, was both 
time consuming uh, and dangerous because the wider you make these these shafts, the more likely they are to collapse. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a structural question at that point. And so they realize that actually the easiest thing to do is to make these tiny little shafts with these tiny little rails. And then they have just children pulling these things out on rails. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess more money, but like, yeah. Oof. Well, and again, let's let's keep in mind, I, it's the kind of thing where I think we talked a little bit about it last time when we were talking about cottage industries. Kids have always worked. Mm -hmm. The issue isn't kids working necessarily. I mean, we're talking about a time before standardized public education is really a thing. You would have households where the entire household is working in the in the textile industry, where uh, dad's weaving, mom's spinning, and the kids are, are carding. Right, like that's that's just how it worked. Mm -hmm. The biggest difference is the type of work that the children are doing, right, and the schedule that they're on. Uh, you have these children working much longer days, and you're sticking kids in coal mines. Like this isn't this isn't hanging out with mom and dad carding some wool. Totally, they're pulling around little mine carts full of coal out of the depths of the earth probably and and i say this like i'm laughing but probably dying very early of horrible diseases oh, because totally. of this like it was not a good scene now did they necessarily know that's what was going to happen with the kids when they started no probably not could they have probably figured it out after a while you'd you'd think so enter the steam engine spe specifically watt steam engine right Again, we're right next to the, the fuel source, so fuel is cheap and plentiful. Let's just hook that steam engine up to a little cart and have that move it out of the uh, out of the mines instead. Sounds good to me. A little bit dangerous to start with. Again, you're putting burning things in a coal mine, mm -hmm. um, but far more efficient at pulling it out. And you have miners that are burning out a lot less quickly because they don't have to do all that work to pull it out of the mine shafts. Mm -hmm. From there, you have expanding rail lines that go... And, and again, early on, these rail lines aren't necessarily tied directly to steam locomotion. Most of the longer range rail is being pulled by horses still. So you'd have these little uh, steam engines pulling them out, but then they'd be loaded onto these massive wagons on rails that would be running all this coal, um, you know, between major urban centers. And those would be pulled by horses because they can, you know, go at their own pace and it's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Rail is quickly sort of set up as the transportation of the future it's a symbol of industrialization right and there's other there's other methods of transportation that are expanded at this point in time the the canal system specifically comes to mind mm. by 1820 the network of canals that runs throughout britain is is incredibly extensive and a lot of it is still there today a lot of it's still in use today the canals are almost always the preferred way of getting things around travel by water is always easier than travel by land in terms of like hauling uh cargo but it's not always possible, and sometimes the canals get a little bit clogged and you need a quicker way of getting things there. They also vastly improved their road system in this time period, but rail starts really sticking out as the way to get things in. Passenger trains aren't really a thing. Uh, if you're going long distances, you're probably taking like stagecoaches on these roads. Mm -hmm. But by 1804, working engines carrying items like short distances like these little uh, within the mines kind of areas the, these steam engines are working pulling all this stuff on uh, on rails and the first uh, commercially available working steam engine train uh, is made available in 1820 nice it's going to be a while before it reaches the extent that we kind of think of a lot of that is going to come after the industrial revolution proper the London Underground isn't really going to be started until the 1860s. People actually didn't want trains inside the cities at all. They're mm -hmm. burning coal. They're loud. They're gross. They smell bad. All the smoke is 
awful. People people hated these things. They were yeah, they were terrible. But the ability to get around is kind of undeniable. Mm-hmm. It, it it very quickly becomes the symbol of of kind of the three most memorable things from from this time period: iron, coal, and the steam engine. All kind of fused into this one uh, massive piece of technology that uh, you know really only serves to further develop the industries that gave birth to it. This is how you get iron around the the country. This is how you get coal from the north of England down to the cities where it's being burned in these massive factories. Yeah, you you certainly could have an industrial revolution without rail, but it kind of feels like it, but, but you can't have rail without the industrial revolution and and it's it becomes so emblematic of progress in this area uh or in this in this era that it becomes the thing that people talk about needing to have to become an industrialized society. This is the thing that, um, you know, in Germany, when they're trying to work their way from, a, a, you know, over a hundred little principalities into one nation, uh, the building of a rail network is seen as a unifying factor that m- legitimizes that unification mm. and also legitimizes them as a modern nation. Mm-hmm. This is why in North America, in both Canada and the U.S., you have such a push to build rail across these continents when, honestly, it makes absolutely no sense uh, to do so. I was just so. thinking that too, yeah. Rail works best in short little distances. It yeah. works in bursts. There's no, there's no reason in the 1860s to build rail across the entirety of Canada, where, you know, there's there's very few settlements that it's actually stopping in mm-hmm. uh, for for thousands of kilometers. <laughs> but it was a status symbol, and and that was that was a large part of why it was built. Coal, iron, steam power. It's all right there. The three ingredients. It's all you need for an industrial revolution, baby. <laughs> Why don't we take a break there? And when we come back, um, there's a big ingredient that's been missing from all of this, which is all the people who are making all of this stuff work. So let's talk about uh, when we get back, we'll talk about all the fallout on British society of all of these massive changes. Back on HI101 here with Scott Weaver. Hey. And uh, we just talked a whole bunch about some uh, various industrial processes that helped to speed things along with the Industrial Revolution. Thing is, um, something like the Industrial Revolution doesn't exactly happen in a vacuum. In fact, one of the one of the main things we talked about in the first half, especially with the agricultural revolution, is how a lot of this is precipitated by a displacement of a lot of people from a more traditional way of life in Britain, specifically uh, a life of subsistence farming, looking after their families first and maybe having a little bit extra to sell for uh, for other items. Mm. That life is long gone by now. This, is, this has been left far, far behind, um, largely by the agricultural revolution itself. The land just simply isn't there anymore, quite literally. It's been parceled off. Uh, and sold to, to landowners um, in a way that wasn't traditionally the case in Britain. But it's also not there anymore in terms of uh, the work for people. People just don't have jobs in the country the way they used to. And that forces them in a lot of cases to move into the city where the only thing they have left to sell is their labor, their time, their work. And that's one of the major driving factors of the Industrial Revolution. Without that upheaval, you don't have the workers needed to get this thing off the ground. 
depending on who you talk to, the Industrial Revolution can either be the best thing that has ever happened to humanity or the absolute worst thing that has happened <laughs> to humanity. And the tricky thing about this, like so many things in history, is that both are kind of right. Mm-hmm. There's there's merit to both arguments here. Some pretty amazing things come out of the Industrial Revolution, but also some pretty rough stuff. It's not exactly an easy period to live through, unless you're already a very wealthy person, in which case you're probably... Uh, living quite comfortably. Right. As with so many things in history, generally those improvements or the detriments tend to stratify along cult, uh, along uh, class lines, um, although it's not a hard and fast rule necessarily. But in general, the poorer you are, the harder this whole thing is going to be on you. And if you're wealthy enough to get in on the ground floor, you're probably going to do amazingly well. <laughs> there are things that come along that are really terrible for uh, upper class people and they're really good uh, things that are really good for lower class people even disproportionately mm-hmm. so um really not that simple to work out in terms of legacy and oftentimes the benefits or the detriments have uh or, or are completely unintended they were meant for something completely different and that's just sort of how it worked out let's revisit the factory system a little bit and talk and, and just kind of refresh what we're talking about here exactly in terms of population movement during this time. You have to remember that there are no cars, there are no buses, there is no London Underground yet. That is several decades off. People live within walking distance of work. They have to. Mm. They absolutely have to. And that means that you need to uh, live very close to your work because it's not as though you have time to to walk several miles a day to work you're going to be working there for a very long time. Isn't that interesting? Something that we take as like a luxury these days. Oh, I'm, I'm just a five minute walk to work. Yes. But now it's, but then it was undisputable. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely no other choice. Yeah. The factory system, like the, the, the division of labor. So it's not necessarily as much about the building as it is uh, the ethic behind the work that's happening there is this idea, which seems again, really obvious in retrospect, but it's the idea that if you have a complex task, it's easier to get a number of people each doing one part of that task over and over than it is to get a bunch of people all doing this complex task from start to finish. Let's say we're building a birdhouse. To have a bunch of us each building our own birdhouse at the same time is not going to be as efficient as if I say, Scott, you're the guy who hammers in the little dowel for them to sit on right. outside the hole. And that's all you do. You get a thing that doesn't have a dowel in it. You hammer it in. You pass it off to the next guy. He's going to be the one, you know, I don't know, nailing it to another piece. If you just do that all day, you're going to get so good at it mm-hmm. and you're just going to be so much faster than if you have to go looking for the next part and shoot, where did I put my hammer and where are my nails? And I guess I'll paint now and now I have to wait for the paint to dry. It's just more efficient. Mm-hmm. It also gets a whole bunch of people together working with uh, equipment that they couldn't necessarily afford to own on their own. Basically, the only thing that you can expect to own as a private citizen is maybe a sewing machine. Mm-hmm. Anything bigger or more complicated than that, you do not have the money to afford or the technical skill uh, to maintain. So if there's anything uh, at all uh, complex happen- happening uh, in an industrial capacity, it needs to be shared labor. And someone fairly well off or a group of individuals or you know someone who can cash in a lot of favors is going to own uh, that machinery. And you're just working for them. You're just selling them your time. Mm-hmm. When it starts out, this is almost exclusively piecework. You go in and let's say you hammered the dowel in on 40 different birdhouses. You get paid whatever our agreed rate is times 40. Mm-hmm. And if tomorrow you hammer in 45, you get paid a little bit more. We're paying you by the day, however many you do. And if you, uh, you know, if you get in at six in the morning and at seven thirty, uh, you 
bust your thumb open because you missed with your hammer and you have to go home and you only made four of them, guess what? You're only getting paid for four. Uh, also, don't bother coming back tomorrow. You're no good to us with a busted thumb. Right. We'll get somebody else to hammer it in. Hope you were saving your money. <laughs> the funny thing about owning machinery versus, say, owning horses or even owning people at certain points in history is that it doesn't matter how hard you work a person or an animal they get tired like there's a there's a breaking point they Mm -hmm. stop machinery doesn't stop machinery can keep going and when something is very 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 expensive and has the capacity to run uh indefinitely then the quickest way to make back your investment is to run it consistently and any downtime is you losing money Mm -hmm. this fundamentally transforms the idea of the relationship between time and work in british society which sounds like a really grandiose thing to say but here's the deal let's say before the industrial revolution you were a guy that just made birdhouses all the time and let's say i wander over and i'm like hey scott how's it going good to see you buddy what's new and you decide to chat for me chat with me for 10 minutes uh, and at the end of your workday, you're just going to work an extra 10 minutes to make up that time. What's the difference? You still yeah. have the same number of birdhouses. Right. Who cares? You work until the sun goes down and you can't see or until you don't feel like it because you've made enough for the day. Mm-hmm. Now, the factory owners are not necessarily concerned about whether or not you feel like taking a break. The machines need to run. Any time that you prevent the machines from doing what the machines need to do is basically you stealing money from their pockets as far as they're concerned. Right. Because if they could be making 500 birdhouses a day and they only made 450, guess what? It's basically like you stole 50 birdhouses from them. Right. It's a very different relationship to the amount of work done in a day. And what it means is that you are expected to be on your shift for an agreed, a previously agreed upon amount of time. And we're going by the time, not by necessarily the amount of work that's done anymore Mm -hmm. because the more machinery that's introduced into it the less sense piecework really makes you're probably making the same number of pieces every single day so let's just switch to a flat rate what matters is that you're on those machines making sure that they run at their flat rate uh, for your entire shift Mm -hmm. the average person at this point in time is going to work a 12-hour day six days a week that's a long day that's brutal that's very brutal but If you say that you don't really feel like working any longer than that, there are a whole bunch of other displaced peasants right outside who no longer have a plot of family land and need to work to live. Right. There is no social safety net here. So I guess you're just lucky to have a job at all. And that's very much how the factory owners saw it. In fact, they saw giving work of any kind as an act of charity. And most workers were grateful for it. So with all that in mind, let's talk about how things can have kind of unintended social consequences through the lens of all of this stuff. Let's talk about gaslighting. Gaslighting is developed by, well, again, we're throwing out a name here, but (laughs) uh, largely developed by a guy named William Murdoch um, between about 1812 and 1820. He's actually working for James Watt's company, and he's figured out that uh, well, him and many other people have figured out, you know that fire damp that we talked about earlier, that Mm -hmm. gas that was coming off of coal? That's really inconvenient when it's just loose in a a coal mine and it could explode and kill a bunch of people, but it's gas and it burns. And this is really interesting. And so if we can find a way to refine coal into gas, and if we can find a way to distribute that uh, safely and and reliably, this is potentially a really good source of lighting. Because up until this point, 
public lighting is like an oil lamp like on a stand and like people have to go around and refill the the oil right and light them manually and all of this stuff right murdoch works out a system through which this coal can be refined basically into methane and distributed through these brass gas lines coal that's been gasified and purified into into this gas is 75 percent less expensive to run than candles or even uh traditional oil lamps so it's significantly less expensive. It's also much more convenient because you don't have to go around and refill it. So you're you're also um, finding efficiencies within that job. You still at first have people going around and like lighting these street lamps manually and put, putting them out again. Mm. But it's pretty easy to do compared to what they had to do before. And then I carry around oil and fill things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. So this is great. Uh, wealthy people now have uh, a more consistent and convenient source of light in their homes. It's... Maybe not the healthiest thing. Again, that whole carbon monoxide issue. But once again, breezier houses, and also people are using light a lot less than we use electric light. Like it's not it's not really analogous, right? But it is better than using a candle or uh, uh, an oil lamp. Mm. So people love it. You can have uh, gas piped straight into your home. It's just right there whenever you need it. It actually cuts down on crime because better lit streets means uh, less opportunity for uh, crime during the night seems kind of obvious but like it's also one of those things where it's like oh yeah like street lights are kind of a recent thing mm-hmm. the other thing i find really interesting about this is how short a time gas lamps exist before like electric lighting comes in right like it's only like 60 years or so 60 70 years before these same places are being electrified and you never have to worry about this issue ever again yeah uh, i would have thought it'd be longer but anyways uh, that's besides the point that's outside of the the framework of what we're trying to talk about why were these lights invented at all is the real question here. The reason they were invented in the first place was because these factories need to run 24 hours a day. Well, six days a week. They gave everyone Sundays off. And you can't run a machine by candlelight. Or you can, but you're far more likely to have your arm pulled off by that drive shaft that has no safety mechanisms to stop. Right. Um, it's far more dangerous. It's uh, uh, far uh, less efficient. If you have good lighting, then people don't have an excuse not to work through the night every single night. 24-hour shifts all the time. So are gaslights good? I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> I don't think anyone really does. Right? And, that's, and that's kind of the point that I'm driving at totally. here, right? Like, it, it's one of those things where I think we like to think of technology in general as being like a very neutral thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it has no, it has no real um, uh, social or political effects outside of whatever we put on top of them. And that's not always necessarily true Mm -hmm. there are certain technologies that uh intentionally or unintentionally uh can disproportionately affect groups either positively or negatively and it's never one thing like it's really hard to say hey x is a bad thing x Mm -hmm. is a good thing um because even though you know you have something as simple as gaslighting going in and it's like hey we've cut down on crime in the streets drastically but also people are are slaving their lives away for uh, pennies on the dollar uh, on overnight shifts, 12 hours a day, six days a week. That's rough. That's a rough way to live. And it's much worse than the kind of life people were living 100 years before on these farms, mm-hmm. in some aspects, at least. I suppose, though, one could argue that it also enabled a much nicer way of life 100 years later. And that's true. Yeah. And that's absolutely a valid argument. I, I need to be very careful not to like paint this as a super negative thing, totally. because I'm, I'm not against industrial process uh, uh progress obviously um <laughs> we are we are currently enjoying many many benefits of it it's it's more just to say that like hey this isn't all good 
and it's not all necessarily bad. All totally. of this stuff has like wide ranging consequences. And we just talked about literally one technology, gaslights. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's really hard to pin down any sort of like qualitative analysis of this stuff. Oh, yeah. the, the network of effects is just mind boggling. Glass making, for example. 1832, a company called Ch uh, Chance Brothers Glass Company uh, invents a process to mechanize uh, making glass. So like specifically like converting sand basically into, mm -hmm. into molten glass. That part's easy. And rolling glass is figured out fairly quickly, just uh, making a, a flat sheet of glass. Actually, originally it's, it's made by floating glass on top of water, which gives you a very like even thickness pain. Mm -hmm. um, and it's... A massive hit. People love having windows with glass in them. It's very, very popular. Right. Glass, it's all the rage. And again, this <laughs> this sort of like hits this culmination with the Crystal Palace that's built in Hyde Park for the 1851 World Exhibition. You've probably seen pictures at some point. Uh, it's been gone since the 1930s, but like it's this massive building and, and it's got this this huge arch made of glass and, and iron. And it's this quintessentially victorian like expression of the industrial revolution right and and drawings that i've seen and photos that i've seen are are beautiful in their own right i can't imagine what it'd be like to look at it in in 1851 terms you know what i right. mean but one of the major issues with glass making is while it makes the glass itself much cheaper and much more accessible to most people it's really only automated for panes of glass and so if for any glassware bottles uh you name it people are still blowing glass. Mm. So they get molten glass automated, but you still have like artisanal blown glass. And these people can hardly keep up with the demand for uh, for blown glass because it's become so much cheaper, but they're still working in a very skilled field mm. trying to create this stuff. And so the compromise that they come up with is that uh, everything outside of the glass blowing itself is being done again by child labor. And so it's really, really common for these children to be blinded or scalded by molten glass in working with these uh, these artisans. And there's so many children looking for work that, uh, you know, a, a kid gets injured in any way and they're just out and the next one's in. And the opportunities for these kids to be taken on as any sort of like actual apprentice, which is the hope here, right? That they'll be taken on as an apprentice and become a master glassblower at some mm -hmm. point. The opportunities for that become slimmer and slimmer as time goes on. Less and less people are doing this. Glass blowing was so difficult on children specifically that I, I saw, I, I, I forgot to write down where it was from, but I saw somebody say somewhere that uh, uh, the automation of glass blowing probably did more to uh, alleviate child labor than actual child labor laws. Wow. Because it was better, like more, more children were put out of work by like not having that job available to them than the actual laws that go into, the, into effect in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, I don't know how true that is, um, but it's very evocative. <laughs> so again, is is cheap, uh, widely available glassware um, to the middle class a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. There's there's a lot to both sides there. You know what I mean? I, I do like this nice glass you you poured some water for me in. Sure, and and luckily none of that had to be blown by hand or <laughs> blinded any children. Right. <laughs> this is an actual automated process now. Hooray for progress! Hooray for progress! <laughs> You know, we, yeah, child labor is, is one of those things that it's sort of emblematic of the Industrial Revolution in a lot of ways. And, and as we've talked about, without meaning to excuse it, it's not like it was a new thing. It just became a much more dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. There's also this idea of like, hey, maybe there are things that kids should be doing, like getting an education, which up until now has been very much reserved for the upper classes. 
And attempts are made to legislate child labor um, fairly early on. The first one would have been in 1833, the Factory Act, uh, saying that children under nine were not allowed to work. Once you hit nine, though, all good. Um, you know, there's further stuff in 1844, uh, no working at night. So kids could only work during the day, mm. uh, limited to only 12 hours a day. You couldn't work more than that. Wow. Yeah. Stupid kids had it so easy. Uh, <laughs> But at the same time, as there's all these people arguing against child labor, which seems like a very sensible position to take, there are also people who are arguing that giving kids jobs is keeping them out of destitution. Right. This is a way of providing their families with extra income. Like this is this is doing them a service. Right. This is giving kids a a career path that someday they can look forward to becoming productive members of society who actually make a living wage rather than being turned out onto the streets as orphans. I, I, yeah, I suppose the alternative wasn't necessarily them going to school. It was. No them not starving it was the workhouse yeah it was the workhouse for them um the workhouses were this symptom of the agricultural revolution basically right like there's all these people that are out of work and it's kind of like well what do we do with all these poor people mm. the end of the uh, uh napoleonic wars only exacerbates it because there's all these soldiers who come back mm. and it's kind of like well what do we do with them uh especially if they're injured right the workhouse was like a very old idea. It's been around for centuries in Britain at this point in time, but it's very much reformed over the Industrial Revolution. It's almost prison-like. You turn yourself into a workhouse. And essentially what they're doing is exchanging food and lodging and healthcare even for free labor. Mm. And sometimes the workhouses will uh, employ that labor within the workhouse to keep it up or in kind of uh, apprentice-like healthcare duties for other people in the workhouse. Uh, other times they're actually like hiring these people out to local factories. So as a factory owner, you could go to a workhouse and say, okay, well, I can pay that kid X amount, but do you have any orphan children that I can pay half that? But the money is going to go to the workhouse. Right. And the workhouse is going to use that to try and turn a profit or at least keep up the workhouse. Um, so it's this, like the worst form of charity kind of thing. Right. They were made deliberately terrible to try and dissuade just lazy people from going to the workhouses. Because at this point, you have to remember, like the idea of poverty is that there is something like innate and immutable about being a poor person. Right. This is something that is about you that you're never going to change. And that, you know, all poor people are lazy and all of these like very like uh, archaic misconceptions about what poverty actually is. I mean, there's this idea that poor people are necessary. You can't have cultural progress without some poor people, because if there are no poor people, who would sell their labor to the rich people? Right. And without that labor, how would we make progress? Victorians, man. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, yeah, it's it quite the time. They had some ideas. They sure, <laughs> they sure had ideas about things. Um, and it's not as though workhouses are all bad necessarily. Again, like you could get better healthcare there than probably what you could get on your own. Mm. It's just like there's a very real sense that we have to make sure that anyone here is here because they had literally no other option in their entire life. Mm. Because if too many people come, then it becomes too expensive to run and then they can't run it. The issue here for them, for Victorians in general, is not the idea of poverty. It's the idea of pauperism specifically. And, and the concept of being a pauper is kind of a, a very specific one that comes down to not being able to support oneself and one's family. Mm. Being poor is fine, but not getting by, that's 
we can't tolerate that. Right. So you go to a workhouse and like you forfeit your right to have a family. Even if you are a, a, a family, um, the, the, the man would be separated from, from, uh, his wife and children. The children were usually allowed to stay with the mother, but only until they were old enough to work and then they'd be separated away. So you're, you're, you're forfeiting the, the family unit. You're forfeiting your right to earn your own wage. You're forfeiting like all of this stuff. They're trying to keep people from taking advantage of this service mm-hmm. uh and yet it's still there and it's still used uh, for very obvious reasons these people had no other choice mm-hmm. it got so ingrained in society that by 1834 it actually became illegal to aid anyone in any way shape or form other than sending them to a workhouse interesting yeah in general in the society you, you just you just don't want to be poor and you especially don't want to be uh poor in a woman women had it so much worse than they did pre-industrialization. At least when we were talking about the cottage industry, there's some uh, discussion of like a division of labor and a share of labor within Mm -hmm. the the household, right? We talked about um, how it's a full family affair. You're working with your family. Everyone contributes um, to match their ability. When you get into factory work, um, women are generally paid about a quarter of the wage of men for the same tasks, uh, children less. Yeah, you're not going to support your family if, if you're you're uh, a single mother right it's just not possible um there are uh excuses made for that things like oh it's a physical job and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you can you can kind of fill in all the blanks yourself it's right. uh it's nothing new exactly but uh, yeah it's 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 a rough situation to be in absolutely so the legacy of the industrial revolution in terms of its like cultural impact there, there's 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 no point in which we can say yes this thing about it is great or like this thing about it is terrible until you get so granular because was it good for working class people sometimes you know was it good for society as a whole yeah a little bit eventually you know how, how long of a time period are we talking about right. uh just how poor are we talking about things like that come into play in a very real way people who had like proper homes on these farms you know, it's found that in the 1840s, a lot of workers are working, are, are living in these London slums with dirt floors, with entire families packed into single rooms because that's what they could afford. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily an increase in standard of living, right? Do, do you say that that's elevated all of society? Well, that's, that's a hard argument to make, you know? On average, between 1780 and 1850, wages only increased by about 15%. This is the entire time period over which, like, the entire industrialization of the country takes place. Wow. And is that accounting for inflation? Yes. Or is that... Yes. That, that is real wage increase. So that's basically nothing. It's very, very small. Yeah. However, by 1910, wages have caught up across the board. Mm. Everyone is doing much, much better by 1910 than they were doing a century before. So, okay, were we just measuring too early did it take a little bit for wages to catch up to where they needed to be was there too much initial investment in all this technology and it took too long to trickle down it's it's really it's really difficult to say but that same measurement depending on the scale that you're using either looks really good for the industrial revolution or really bad right right life expectancy in general doesn't increase until the 1870s so that entire time, people are dying at the same rate. Now, yes, you are coming off of uh, an agricultural revolution that's kind of rough on people at the very start. Mm. Um, you are going through the entire Napoleonic Wars in that period. There is a massive famine in the uh, late 1830s, 1840s. Some of that famine, however, is caused by the British government's own protectionism. 
uh, there's something called the Corn Laws. It's actually going to be a major problem in the uh, the Irish famine of the 1840s. Mm. Uh, this is where they're basically taking perfectly good grain out of Ireland and, and shipping it off to the continent to be sold uh, while Irish people are starving. Um, and meanwhile, making grain from other parts of the world too expensive to import uh, in any meaningful way. Right. So part of that famine is... is really fabricated. So is that an issue of the Industrial Revolution itself, or is that an issue of the protectionist policies of the government put in at, in place at the time? Kind of hard to attribute that specifically to technical, technological development, though, right? Mm -hmm. Th there's other issues that go along with the urbanization of the population. Overcrowding is a major issue, runs into massive uh, public health uh, problems. Cholera outbreaks, for example, are, are rampant, which is tied back to terrible sewage systems. You've heard of the the uh, Broad Street Pump incident, John no. Snow. He was a doctor. Um, this was the uh, this was the event where we discovered that cholera was a waterborne illness. Um, keep in mind, this is like miasma theory era of medicine. Uh, John Snow is the one that realized that there was this massive outbreak uh, in Soho of cholera, and he realized that all of the houses, except for I think five or ten, where there were these outbreaks, were within or were closer to this one pump. Uh, this one water pump uh, than any other pump. Oh. Um, and this is a time period where you would go out to the communal pump, pump your water for drinking and take it back to your house. Mm -hmm. He discovered that the houses that were outside of that ring that were actually closer to another pump just preferred the taste of the one from Broad Street. And so they would go further to get their water. He couldn't convince the authorities that it was because of the drinking water. That's not uh, that's not how disease was understood at the time. Right. He actually broke the handle off the pump uh, to try and prevent further uh, deaths from cholera. Wow. Um, he himself isn't wasn't terribly sure whether or not that was actually effective. It seemed like it was already that the outbreak was already on the decline when he did that. But I mean, it was one of the things that's pointed to as you know on a timeline towards understanding germ theory of of infection. Right. Um, you know, it's not bad air. It's uh, it's a little bug in the water. But that's a real problem. There's sewage mixing with drinking water in the cities where you have more people than there have ever been. Totally. Uh, it's a terrible problem until the 1870s or so when um, sewage starts uh, actually being properly managed. You know, the uh, the the invention of proper concrete uh, plays a factor into that, right? Like they, they were making concrete uh, sewers, basically modern sewer systems. You know, concrete's not really rediscovered until the 1830s in a workable form. So all of this stuff is kind of feeding back and forth on itself, right? Like it's creating this problem, poorly managed sewage, but it's also created the solution, concrete and the ability to manage sewers, that solves the problem that it's creating on its own. And mm. so are we good? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the life expectancy stays low, the disease, the, the, the famine, all of that. But um, infant mortality rates or mortality rates of children under five drops from 1750 to 1830. So we're only talking about 80 years. Mm -hmm. It drops from 74.5%. So three quarters of children in Britain died before the age of five. Wow. In 1750. It dropped to 31.8% in 1830. That's still I high. Mean, that's still a very high number, but much better. Much, much better. <laughs> wow. In in terms of the, the the level of change there, that's massive. Oh, totally. And that's just going to keep going down with better understanding of, you know, medic, uh, medicine and things like that. But keep in mind, most of that change, 1830 is before the modern age of medicine. Yeah. Like, it's not as though we can attribute that, that change to, uh, you know, the development of vaccination or anything like that. Um, 
that's just better living conditions for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is better access to um, uh, hospitals for birth complications, things like that. That is uh, uh, less exposure to famine within cities. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still issues outside of the cities. There's especially issues in Ireland at this point in time, but that's a whole other issue. I've got a whole episode on the treatment of Ireland by Britain at this point in time. Right. Um, but, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, societal issues that are, uh, you know, caused by industrialization rather than you know, colonization, uh, things seem to be going a lot better health-wise. So is it bad for people or is it good for people? I, you know, like it, it keeps for every time something really terrible happens, something good is also happening at the same time to turn your opinion against it, right? Further complicating this issue of whether or not health is getting better uh, and whether famine is being better managed is that between 1800 and 1850, the population of England doubles. Wow. It goes from about 8 million to about 16 million. It slightly more than doubles, actually. So it was able to keep up with that level of population growth while still managing to uh, improve, on some measures, public health. Right. Um, and on other measures, it just was taking a little bit longer, you know, in the sewage and whatnot. So the improvements are kind of like sitting there beneath the surface. It's going to take longer for them to actually come out. The mechanization of paper production is a really big deal at this point in time because... Yeah, it's it's great for, for the upper class and it's great for academics and things like that. But it makes paper really cheap. It makes books really accessible. Mm. And it makes the literacy rates skyrocket in Britain. Oh. It's not just books. It is the availability of newspapers. Newspapers are everywhere and people are learning to read them. You will find a newspaper out there that will match your beliefs and your viewpoints. Uh, it, is a, it is a wild period in journalism. Uh, there is nothing even remotely resembling objectivity. And uh, I don't know. There's something kind of great about that, I think. <laughs> Sounds a bit like the Internet. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, that's that's the thing. If you want if you want um, if you want news for you, you'll find it. Yeah. That also results in a much more politically engaged population because we're still coming out in certain aspects. We're still coming out of the feudal era. Right. Mm. People weren't used to having anything remotely resembling a say in the governance of their uh, of their society right now they're actually keeping on top of things now they have opinions about things the industrialization of the population exploits it but it also empowers it in in this kind of roundabout way and people aren't necessarily happy with the level of exploitation that uh industrial revolution era um labor laws afford them and and, and the owners were worried about that i mean in 1799 unions are made illegal you're not allowed to unionize. Mm. There was something kind of resembling unions once in the guild system, but that's not really what the guild system was. That was more of a gatekeeping endeavor to make sure that your skills remain marketable, right? It's not the same, uh, you know, uh, support from other unskilled workers. Mm-hmm. You do have this brief outburst of a uh, group known as Luddites that are probably more famous than they necessarily deserve. But basically what's happening there is uh, they they, pur- they purported to be followers of a guy named Ned Ludd who had supposedly lived in the 1760s and, you know, broken his, his uh, um, weaving machinery in a fit of rage at the owners. And it probably never actually existed, but it, it's, it's a good story. And, and really what's happening with the Luddites, I, I think they get mistaken now for people who fear technology. It's like this idea like, oh, I hate machinery. And so I'm going to destroy the machinery. I think that's a really poor reading of what was happening there. In reality, unions had been destroyed and you have all these people who are skilled craftsmen who are being asked to um, first develop and then work on machines that completely supplant them 
from the skilled labor they grew up learning how to perform mm. and often right beside very unskilled people who are doing the exact same job as them and getting the exact same pay as them right which is a really tough thing to swallow and so without the ability to unionize and, and agitate for higher wages you know between 1790s and the 1830s kind of thing specifically in the weaving industry like wages halved they went down by 50 percent right and these people are going i worked my entire life i'm very good at what i do i'm just mm -hmm. not being allowed to do it this is ridiculous and so the only way that you can really make your services in any way needed is break the machines right and so these guys would go to work in the day and then at night they would band together out in the countryside and decide uh, whose factory to go raid and break the break the machinery. Wow. It was extremely expensive, but it was literally the only type of negotiation, the only type of leverage that they possessed. Um, eventually, uh, the, the raids were broken up by the government. I mean, they sent in soldiers to defend these machines. They, they managed to bust a plot of about 60 men. Uh, around half of them got off, but the other half... Like they executed people for breaking machines. They sent people to Australia for breaking machines. Wow. Um, this is during the Napoleonic Wars, so there's some level of, you know, national security, blah, 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 blah. But, like, the Luddites kind of stopped after that. Right. Um, yeah, there was the whole thing where it was, like, the owner would come in in the morning and it was, you know, what happened to these machines? And the workers would be like, oh, I heard Ned Ludd did it. Like, is that's where the, <laughs> ne the name comes from. Right. It's this mythical, you know, Robin Hood-style disgruntled worker figure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of wild stuff, but you know, the, the, the labor unrest remains below the surface and not always below the surface in 1820s. Uh, there's a, a massive strike in Scotland. As many as 60,000 people go on strike weavers, mostly, mm. uh, it's no, it's, it's a portion of, of something known as the radical war. There's, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on there, but, uh, the, the, the important thing here is the, the workers going on strike for better working conditions. And again, the army sent in and it's quickly, uh, uh, dispersed. There's a lot of people injured and killed in the process. There's, there's very, you know, union busting is a very real thing. Like right. they don't mess around with it. Um, the idea of, uh, uh, organizing labor is not of any interest to anyone in government. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating for these workers because they have no leverage whatsoever. They have, you know, they know that there's that lineup of other workers waiting outside. If they ask for higher pay or if they ask for less hours, somebody else will gladly walk in and take the job, not because they're scabs, but because they literally need this job to survive. There's not no, starve, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's the only other option is the workhouse and the workhouse might not have even taken them if they're able-bodied enough to take work elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's a really difficult situation to be in they're finally allowed again unions i mean in, in 1824 but they're still normally the subject of violence from the government and from uh owners often of sabotage they would send in uh workers quote unquote undercover to try and like figure out who's leading it who's mm. the who's most likely to be trouble a mole yeah and report back to the owners so being a part a, a part of a union was actually very dangerous the increased literacy and increased uh, political um, participation led the labor movement to kind of move into the political arena rather than the labor organization arena. Uh, in 1832, a bill comes across Parliament called the uh, Reform Act. And basically what the Reform Act is about is do we expand voting rights in the United Kingdom? Because up until that point, you need like there there are voter requirements. Not every not everyone has the vote. Not every man has the vote, uh, which is kind of the standard for democracy at that point in time. Which you know, another show. Um, <laughs> 
But there are people agitating for what they called universal manhood suffrage. Hmm. Um, take away the requirement for land ownership to vote. Take away the requirement of a certain amount of income per year to vote, which is what was in place. There's this group called the Chartists who are advocating for uh, labor rights and they want extra things put in like pay MPs up until this point you don't get paid as an MP because it's expected that anyone that runs for parliament is independently wealthy and doesn't need it right they're going this is disenfranchising poor people even if they have the ability to vote and the ability to run for office this will preclude them from holding office because they can't afford to hold office mm-hmm. this is all an attempt to legislate improvements to work from the inside and this is You could call it a a proto-socialist movement. Proto-capitalism has kind of had its way with these people (laughs) at this point, and they're upset. And it's kind of understandable why Uh, it has not improved their lives, not in any way that they've managed to see yet. And yes, stuff is coming down the road, but they don't have a crystal ball. They're looking at all of this going, we're this is horrible. Well, yeah. They might not even make it long enough to see any improvements. My my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents lived better than this on their idyllic little farm in in a life that, you know, never actually existed. It's still a, a, you know, a rose-tinted glasses version of it. But at least they knew that those people had um, some level of self-determination on this land. They, Mm -hmm. they, They weren't owned by anyone else. It felt like they'd gone back to being owned by these factory work or these factory owners. Right. Nothing's actually going to come out of this Chartist movement from a legislative standpoint. Those sort of changes aren't going to come to the British Parliament until the 1860s. But you know, throughout the you know, there's a bit of a a bit of an economic downturn in the in the 1840s that's linked to all of those famines that we were talking about. Um, this results in lots of strike actions and things like that mm. by these workers, and they start to find a collectivist voice uh, to some extent, and you start to see some small changes here and there uh during this era nothing nothing huge most of it is still a while out it is worth mentioning though that this is the society that Karl marx writes about in the communist manifesto right this is this is all all of this that we've talked about this is the background for these guys looking at um capitalist society and going it's inevitable like the, the uprising is coming right marx believed that it was going to happen in britain first because it was the most industrialized place. And right. as, an, as, as a result, its citizens seem to be the most oppressed workers mm-hmm. of the world. He, he very much saw um, the laborer as the most, imp- the most oppressed person uh, that existed. Right. And given the way that this whole movement has treated people who don't own factories, um, you can kind of see where he might have gotten that notion yeah, we're going to get to a spot where, you know, welfare exists and we're going to get to a spot where uh, minimum wages or or the 40-hour work week is going to exist. But those things don't come from the charity of the factory owners, right? They yeah. are hard fought for by these workers through very dangerous and often violent strike actions by mm-hmm. collective bargaining. It takes uh, reaching a spot where there is less labor than there is opportunity mm-hmm. for these people to reach a position of power where they can bargain for anything at all, where they can make sure that wages don't go down by 50% over a couple of decades just because they can. Right. This race for the bottom at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution was horrific for workers. I don't know how you live like that. I mean, I, I suppose many didn't. Correct. <laughs> that's that, No, that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. So, you know... I, I hate to I hate to end on a bit of a downer. It was more just like 
that's that's where all this stuff comes from right so yeah you know we get the you know we, we get electric power out of all of this eventually and we get the uh uh the automation of of industry and we get consumerism for better or worse and we get you know the, like the access to cheap consumer goods things like that and and it's all there it's all available to us but yeah there's some people that paid some prices for it right um so is it a good thing i don't know i mean yeah but but is it worth the price we paid for it that's right. a that's a it's a whole other discussion to have industrial revolution good for us happy not to have lived through it yeah more or less <laughs> um I don't want to spend too much time on it, but a question that comes up a lot is why, why there, why then? Right. And I think it's worth addressing really just, just very briefly. And, and what I would say is there, it, that's a complicated question. Mm. There are things in place in other times and in other places that might have resulted in something like an industrial revolution. The reason that it began in Britain is um, a lot of factors coming together at the same time. It can be attributed to uh, the amount of natural resources available in Britain. It just has enough coal to make things work. The textile industry is excellent for automation. It's it's made for automation. Right. And the uh, the growth of the textile industry after the uh, agricultural revolution is really important to all of that. The agricultural revolution itself, um, decoupling uh, uh, people's value from uh, the land that they lived on and and sort of coupling it to the labor they're able to perform is essential. We had a number of examples in the first half of societies suppressing automation because they felt that it would be bad for people. Totally. Um, the Industrial Revolution doesn't really consider what's bad for people or good for people. It <laughs> considers what's good for profits. Mm -hmm. um, so that rise of the entrepreneurial spirit, the rise of capitalism in Britain uh, is absolutely mandatory for right. it. Um, the ability to exploit half a world of resources and concentrate it all in Britain is really important for all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the only thing that that makes automation uh, worthwhile at the beginning. Um, you know, people say things like, "Well, why not? You know, why not India? There's lots of people there. There's lots of resources there." You know, it could be argued that the British Industrial Revolution came, uh, you know, was bankrolled by what could have been the Indian Industrial Revolution. All of that material, all of that labor, was funneled into the British uh, uh, economy in the in the 18th century right. um, through colonization. Uh, why not China? Well, you know, that one's a little bit more complicated. Yes, they had the coal for it. Yes, they had the people for it. They had the know-how for it. There isn't a great example, or there isn't a great reason for why. I've seen lots of speculation. Things like uh, a more collectivist ethos about the structure of society is sometimes pointed to. Um, Britain just tends to be a lot more individualistic and seems to really root for mavericks who go ahead and uh, accumulate personal wealth at all costs. Right. That's not as highly valued in, in Chinese society at the time. Um, things like a strong centralized state, though, in, in, in China. Um, you know, when you're in Europe and you have all these little states very close together, it encourages people trying different things to see if they can get an edge. Mm. When things tick along okay, that's not a good time for innovation. And we talked about that a lot in the totally. first half. Yeah. You need that kickstart of some sort. You need that uh, disequilibrium to even start trying this new stuff because it's hard to disrupt the status quo. Yeah, if people are comfortable, they don't want to break out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be disastrous to try new things like that, but sometimes it works out really well. Right. And in this case, it did. You just can't know that until you try it. Mm -hmm. It's really, really tricky. So, you know, why there? Why then? It just worked out. It's it's remarkable. Having never really thought about it that much, I just kind of assumed, well, yeah, like it was due. So 
the industrial revolution came but and that's an easy trap to fall into for sure yeah but but having listened to you talk about all these distinct factors all Mm. coming together it's it's almost remarkable that it happened at all yeah definitely (laughs) there's there's a lot of stuff that kind of just lined up just right for it to happen totally uh when it did i mean you know down to down to uh britain's um removal of of trade uh barriers within the island uh Mm. shortly prior to the industrial revolution i mean that was a massive hampering uh factor on germany's industrial revolution for example it took them decades to get uh, to where Britain was, even mm-hmm. though all the technology is already available in Britain, largely because of their trade network within within Germany itself. Right, you had to create this free trade uh, uh, region uh, within Greater Germany before you could really make any of that work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't cast a wide enough net for the resources needed to automate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of small little factors coming together. So why there? It's kind of like, well, it, it just it just hadn't happened anywhere else yet. It's it's easy to feel like history has to go a certain way because we're used to it having gone a certain way, and mm-hmm. that's certainly not true. Not not even remotely. Uh, it was it was not due in Britain at that point in time any more than it was due in China. Uh, you know, twelve hundred years before when they had steam engines and puddling and coal deposits and. Uh, movable print printing presses and all of these things that would be utilized in the industrial revolution just never got put together in quite that exact uh, uh, arrangement right so uh, it's less about destiny or 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 uh, even necessarily deserving it but it's it's a lot up to chance right it's a very very interesting process so um, I think I think that's the Industrial Revolution, uh, <laughs> unless there's anything that I, I glazed over too quickly for you or you had any questions or comments on. Uh, what did you think? That, I mean, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, what an interesting talk. Oh, fascinating. So you, you had fun on your first uh, your first episode of HL1? Oh, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, uh, in that case, let's leave it there. Um, that's the industrial revolution put a period on it um thanks so much for uh joining me it was really a thanks for having having me uh we'll have to do it again soon definitely it's next to impossible to imagine the world today without the industrial revolution the invention of wide-scale automation of production touches more than what we buy it affects far more ephemeral concepts like wealth and status and political participation Its benefits are undeniable, but it's similarly difficult to ignore the difficulties it caused that were only really curbed by political action by ordinary workers. Even more than world wars or political revolutions, the Industrial Revolution may have a claim to the most disruptive and influential and detrimental and beneficial event in modern world history. Next time on HI101, we'll be celebrating the 100th episode by answering some audience questions and then talking about the one and only Christopher Columbus. That episode should be up in a couple weeks. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. 
And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.